Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children, 18 plus, you are tuned in to the Loan Officer Podcast with me, Dustin Owen, and an extremely special guest. I've been waiting two years to have this gentleman on the show. Originally from Waco, Texas, he spent the past 35 plus years in the D.C. Beltway lobbying on behalf of the home builder and mortgage industries. He is the MBA's chief lobbyist. He is the one, the only Bill Kilmer. Bill, welcome to the Loan Officer Podcast. Thanks, Dustin. Uh, pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I'm super excited. So we are uh, live and on location. Well, we're recording it live. We're not actually going to uh, be producing it live. This episode will actually drop tomorrow. But we are at um, the MBA's 2023 annual conference in Philadelphia, PA, home of our birth of our nation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, these last couple of days and a couple more 3,500 folks from across the industry here to uh, gather and discuss issues of the day during these challenging times. Yeah, it's been a great morning. I got to start my morning listening to Tim McGraw sing two of his greatest hits. Were you, uh, were, you, were you able to catch that or did you have another meeting to go to? Uh, I wasn't able to stay there for the time that he was singing, but uh, mm -hmm. I saw him up on stage with John Meacham. Yeah, Meacham too. Um, what's your favorite John Meacham book? I can only imagine that you've read one or two. Thomas Jefferson. Okay, yeah. 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 Which is actually my favorite because I served in the uh, George H. W. Bush administration. Was his biography of Bush forty one. He talked about that today. Like yeah. He he worked on that for twenty years. Yeah. Um, John Meacham. If you don't know who John Meacham is, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer. Um, but what I loved about his interview today is how down to earth, um, how sarcastically humorous he is um and he's doing this interview with tim mcgraw and they're buddies but they're like ribbing on each other oh yeah no that he had hoped uh that he could write the the book about songs of america with faith hill as opposed to tim mcgraw but you know their relationships worked out <laughs> nonetheless oh yeah you talk about beecham was talking about yeah 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 because he and tim mcgraw are obviously doing something for the nba but they're also promoting their book oh absolutely yeah i think they've been doing a tour like this for a couple of years yeah, since I their book dropped um, so I want to kind of jump into this because I know we have limited time and I mean, you are someone who is in the know you spend your, your whole entire career is in DC working on Capitol Hill, correct? Lobbying. Uh, yeah. I've worked in and around public policy, whether it's with executive branch agencies or on Capitol Hill for the bulk of the time I've been in Washington. So you're a guy that probably knows a thing or two about not just what's going on, but a little bit of, you can look into the future and give us a lay of the land of what to possibly expect. You can make some hypothetical guesses better than most. Um, I've done a fair amount of soothsaying, you know, in terms of sort of predicting which way the winds may go, um, which is part of the job because you have to sort of anticipate on behalf of the industry, uh, you know, who the key players are, are going to be and, and what some of the roadblocks might be to see if you can't sidestep them. So I do a little bit of, of that from time to time. Yeah, just so the audience knows, you won't remember this because I'm sure you gave a speech like this 100 times a year ago, but it was a year ago or two years ago, you sat down in a, a room of probably 20, 30 mortgage bankers. We were up in 1919 M Street doing something. And you came in to speak like you normally do and give your 15 or 20 minutes, but you laid out the 2022 election, like all the way down to um, the Republicans more than likely aren't going to take both the House and the Senate. And it's going to be very, it's going to be much closer in the House. Yeah. And, you know, if, if they do get the Senate, it's going to be 50-50, 51-49. And you crushed it. Like literally on election night, everyone, all the talking heads were shocked. 
but not Bill Kilmer because it laid out like you thought it would. Well, that's generous of you. I'm sure that that discussion was stream of consciousness at that particular time. But yeah, that's certainly part of it is, um, you know, we're participants and sort of constituents by proxy through the MBA on behalf of the industry. So we have to build relationships with these folks and have to anticipate, you know, where our friends or foes might be given any election cycle. So uh, that is certainly a part of the drill. So before I get too geeked out with you, which is what I plan on doing, like John Coleman, who produces the show with me, he likes to say, oh, sometimes with D.O., you just wind him up and let him go. I told you before we started recording, hey, Bill, my goal is to wind you up and let you go. You're going to make my job easy. And you laugh. You're like, man, I wish my staff would uh, see it that way. I guess maybe there's times well, where my staff thinks that it takes me five or 10 minutes to like introduce myself to a crowd. <laughs> so they just wish that I would be a little more brief. So if you wind me up, you know, prepare for, uh, you know, me doing a filibuster, but uh, I'll do my best. Perfect. Well, so briefly, how would you describe to the audience, your role within the MBA, like understanding 65% of audiences more, are they are mortgage professionals. What are you as Bill Kilmer with the MBA? What are you doing day to day? for us? Yeah. Well, really, uh, MBA is a great think tank on behalf of the industry. And I, I, I say that in the best possible way, because you, 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 you do better when you're making policy arguments if you have facts to back up where you're coming from. So working with our public affairs team, with our economics and research team, uh, with our subject matter experts for both residential and commercial multifamily members of MBA, and then my team, the legislative and political team that does the grassroots, does fundraising on behalf of our political action committee for the industry, but then also have direct lobbyists that are up with each quadrant of Congress, House and Senate Republican, House and Senate Democrat, and then I supervise that group of lobbyists and the fundraising and grassroots staff within that whole MBA ecosystem so that we can take the policy positions the members have decided upon and try to either play good defense or good offense. Um, so I've had the, you know, the pleasure, the honor of being the chief lobbyist for MBA for the last 13 years. And, you know, I wake up every day feeling pretty good, and the team does too, about the fact that uh, we're connecting to policies and trying to get policymakers, lawmakers, you know, regulatory officials uh, directly or indirectly to do what's best on behalf of those that are trying to get better shelter for their family and be a part of the American dream. You know? Yeah, so like most recently, Ron has been on your to-do list, Trigger Leads has been on your to-do list, right? You and your team, you're actually getting into the Senate chambers or into the House chambers or the, the office meetings, maybe not the yeah. chambers themselves. And you're having those conversations with the elected officials to let them know to support this particular bill or not to support this particular bill. And, and here's why. You know, yeah. And to drill down, that's precisely right, Dustin. Um, that's our job, really. You know, my, my team directly, functionally to lobby legislators and their key staff who are sometimes as critical or even more critical to as they instruct the senators or the members of of the u.s house that um you know these are the positions that industry has taken and that we would most definitely align with or hear the arguments that they're making so you, you mentioned just a couple of those issues i mean affordability and housing supply certainly part of that mix because we just don't have enough homes right now you know in our country across the whole panoply of markets not just isolated in a few spots but uh, really a, a lack of inventory across the board. Um, that's a big issue, obviously. Making legislators aware of the headwinds the industry is facing so that they don't create more frictions or that they can lean into the regulators to try to prevent that. Certainly keeping government open 
So those Gini securitized HUD, USDA, VA home loan programs, uh, you know, the insured programs are available. If we were to have a shutdown, what does that mean? What are the implications for the average consumer? Uh, flood insurance. Yeah. You know, you don't want to have flood insurance lapse, and it's been tied to these continuing resolutions or funding bills over the last decade or so um, because we just don't need the additional friction of that, you know, forcing people to perhaps step away from the closing table if they were at a point where they were going to do so, particularly at a time when there is enough of that going forward. And I can, I can go down a long list of other issues, tax policy items, where we're trying to help push for housing tax credits that would uh, help us increase housing supply with, uh, with government support. You mentioned Ron, you mentioned trigger leads. Insurance and the availability of insurance is a, is a big issue. Um, and then other regulatory matters like the CFPB. Uh, there's a case before the Supreme Court that yes. questions the constitutionality of the funding stream for the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And if the court were to rule, uh, no predictions as to, as to where that might go, but they've just heard oral arguments that the CFPB or a portion of the, you know, the structure was unconstitutional, uh, what does that mean for the rulemakings? And you know, we don't want the, uh, the mortgage regulatory apparatus to sort of descend into chaos. And so continuity and pushing for that and being ready to work with the Congress if they had to step in pending that court ruling is a, a, another example. And then the Basel III, uh, you know, banking accords, yes. you know, that the in-game proposal that uh, would have a particularly negative impact if it's not altered uh, on, the, on the mortgage space and mortgage servicing rights and risk weights and the requirements attached to that, which will ultimately get passed along to the consumer. So those are just, you know, a few examples of the things that we're working on. This is what I love. Wind you up and let you go. Like, I'm going to take a pause because our hardcore audience, like they hear me talk about going to NAC every single spring, the National Advocacy Conference. Typically, it's in April this year coming up. It's in March. It is my favorite conference to go to because everything Bill's talking about, if you want to participate for a day, and be like Bill for a day, you get that opportunity to march on Capitol Hill to meet with your state representatives and, and to advocate all these types of topics that are near and dear to our hearts and really what's best for our communities. You can do that or those hardcore T-loppers, we call them, by the way, Bill. So if you're like, list, tune in twice a week, every single week, you go to our website, T-lop online, you're a member, you're a T-lopper, they go on T-lop online. I have links to ma i have links to Morpac, and they hear me talk about it because ma is the, the is the mortgage action alliance that's the grassroots effort right that's where for no money you can make sure your voice is heard with a click of a couple buttons so like if you're in the mortgage industry and you're not a member of ma like yo go over to tloponline.com there's a link right there go ahead and sign up um and then once you're a part of ma Morpac, that's when you can kind of put your money where your mouth is in terms of making some donations um, but typically in order to do that, we want you to be a member of Ma first. Um, but you know, I make sure that I do it because when I listen to you speak and you rattle off all of these issues that are current, I also know that once we get through these, there's going to be a new wave of issues and a new wave of issues, yeah. which keeps you employed for 35 years in Washington, D.C. Well, it does. And, and you, you hate that that's sometimes the cause and effect. But at a time when the industry is contracting by necessity because volumes are down, and uh, because interest rates, obviously, that environment has changed rapidly. 
uh, and there's not adequate supply, that does not mean that the number of policy issues contracts as well. In fact, I think we're, we're facing more challenges and there are uh, steeper challenges because you know the, in, the industry is in that portion of the down cycle. So uh, the stakes are even higher and I think the level of engagement and you mentioning MA, you mentioning MORPAC, the opportunities for people to engage as industry members, but also invest in their own future so that we can be more effective on Capitol Hill on the industry's behalf is a huge portion of the whole ecosystem of how we try to advocate on, be, on behalf of the industry. And I am, I am happy to talk about the National Advocacy Conference because I made a reference to how we as staff for MBA are constituents by proxy, but there's nothing more dramatic than having constituents actually take the time come to Washington or meet back home in the district or in the, in the home state for a senator, but come to Washington, take the time, walk the offices, and um, you know, press the issues from a practitioner's point of view, you know, explaining what the impacts are, not only to your business operations, but more importantly, how it's impacting the policies that they're debating are impacting your customers. Well, and having um, been to DC multiple times for that conference, like I can tell y'all, your elected officials, they do wanna hear from you or their staff, they do care to hear, they don't know what we do for a living. Just like you probably don't know exactly how a bill becomes a law, although it's taught to you twice, once in middle school, once in high school, um, you probably forgot it, they don't know the mortgage industry. They wanna hear you tell stories about your one borrower who you were trying to do a prequal with, but because you did a prequal, now they're getting 18 unsolicited phone calls, emails and text messages because yeah. someone sold their trigger lead. They wanna hear that and we want them to hear that so that when we go to them later down the road and say, hey, HR 2626 is currently in the house. You should vote yes on it. And here's why they can put a story with two letters and, and four digits and kind of have it make sense and all come together. Yeah. And, and, and I'm glad you raised the trigger leads example. Uh, the bill that we prefer actually is HR 4198. Oh yeah, I, by the way, I made up 2626. No, that, that was a hypothetical. But I mentioned that because you know we, we've worked alongside the office of the Congressman from Tennessee, John Rose, who dropped that bill. It's our preferred uh, approach to solving abusive trigger leads and how you would curb their use, um, there are some legitimate reasons, I think we all learned through the pandemic or relearned during the pandemic, that a servicer needs to mm -hmm. be in contact with their customer. And those who originated the mortgage, that's a different relationship, even if they sold the servicing you know, with, with the customer, uh, other than somebody who's just trying to use the opportunity in a very intense and competitive market to try to mortgage, you know, to market their services. So. Uh, trying to build the right kind of funnel to limit the abuse of trigger leads is, is one of the important things we're working on. And we're, we're close to getting a, a bipartisan bill potentially introduced in the Senate. And it, th these are difficult times to get legislation enacted in Washington, even the big stuff that has to be done, like funding the government or the geopolitical considerations with everything going on around the world that you know the United States needs to be in a position to help fund our allies. Etc. So a smaller bill that deals with the Fair Credit Reporting Act and one aspect of, of the mortgage industry, it's a challenge, but there still are pathways. And, uh, you know, really, it has to be a combined effort of folks pushing from back home and being engaged and then what we do on a daily basis on the industry's behalf in D.C. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to dive into kind of the current climate and the current environment. Um, remind me, though, I do want to circle back because you mentioned affordable housing. And I have a generic question that if we have time, I want to ask you as it pertains to affordable housing, because I always 
get stuck personally trying to figure out, well, is this a national issue? Is it a state issue? Is it a, a local municipality issue? And my answer has always been, I believe it's all of the above. Um, but someone like you would actually be able to, to offer some substance and some texture probably behind my very common answer. But I, I don't want to miss out on this opportunity. So yeah, you, we, we, have a, we have a war going on in Europe. We have a 3,000 year old war that's been resurrected in the Middle East. Uh, we have a house with no leader. We have a presidential election in, oh my gosh, like 13 months. Um, we have a Federal Reserve who can't find the brakes and maybe that's their foot stuck on the gas. What, what are you seeing through your lens the next 13, 18 months as it pertains to, I mean, both chambers getting along, actually passing legislation, the presidential election, how's that gonna impact housing? What is the Biden administration doing about housing, if anything? Um, curious your take on all of that. I'm, I'm teeing you up and I'm going to sit back. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll try not to give you a generic answer on that question or, or one on affordability. Uh, look, these really are kind of unprecedented times, and I don't mean that as a default answer to just blow smoke at your, at your audience. Um, there is now a speaker, a speaker pro tempore of, of, the, of the U.S. House. That, that's a, a position that was created in the wake of 9-11 so that there would be continuity if God forbid, uh, you know, kind of like some of the uh, TV series yes. scenarios, um, you know, you had, you had the, the designated survivor. Uh, and, and, uh, and lo and behold, for different reasons, you had this unprecedented action of the House rules allowing for this motion to vacate. And we now have a former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But in the modern era, um, you know, the U.S. House has always been governed by the conference or the caucus, Democrat or Republican, and who they elected within their own ranks to be the leader. And then a, the, an assurance that they'd have, they'd have enough votes from that majority that even if it was a totally partisan breakdown um, and you didn't get any votes from the other side of the aisle as a speaker candidate, that you would get the office and you'd have the certainty of you know, being able to make the leadership decisions for the basic operations of the House, scheduling legislation, working with committees, you know, kind of running the railroad and keeping it on time, making sure that funds are appropriated to keep the federal government open, defense appropriations at a time when you mention the stuff that's going on around the world again. And all of that has ground to a halt. So you know, on November 17th, we'll, we'll have the specter of another government shutdown, which will have implications for housing consumers, at, you know, multifamily or single family, and our members at MBA and how they're impacted in their work with those customers or end users of, of, of the financing that they're uh, providing. So that has, that has implications, and um, the clock is ticking. Because to, to the layperson, Speaker of the House is essentially the CEO of the House of Representatives. Yeah, I mean, in, in concert with the other leadership, the traditional roles, and some of the names are different depending on the party, but there's a speaker, there's a majority leader who sets the daily agenda, and then there's a whip who's supposed to marshal the vote count. Well, that's become an increasingly difficult thing to do when you have these different niches and fractures in both the Republican and the Democratic you know, caucus uh, gatherings of different people that are either to the far left or the far right and a, a you know diminishing number of moderates who have some sort of commonality in the middle between both parties. So I, I'll sit, sit here and tell you that on this day, on a Monday in Philadelphia <laughs> with you, 
I'm not sure who's going to be the next leader of the Republicans to be speaker. I think that ultimately the system's durable and we'll, we'll get through this. And I'm, I'm a cautious optimist, like John Meacham <laughs> mentioned earlier today, Dustin, in that regard. But yeah, we have the specter of what is probably likely to be a pretty fractured presidential election in 2024. You may have the same two folks who ran against each other, the incumbent president and former President Trump. At least that's what the polls would indicate now, despite the weakness, despite the uncertainty around the world, um, you know, despite the economic conditions. And you mentioned the overlay of regulatory agencies, the executive branch. The, the Biden administration does have an affordable housing policy. Now, whether that is leaning more into subsidized housing, you know, I, you can make an argument about that. But then you have the Federal Housing Finance Agency regulating Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And then obviously you have HUD and the critical role. That, that they play. And we're in front of these folks at the White House, the National Economic Council, all the regulatory bodies that matter to the industry on a regular basis. But the Fed is a different body by definition, you know, governing the monetary policy uh, despite its economic policy mandate. And, you know, we as an industry um, are, you know, d definitely in a recession and a slowdown, but the rest of the economy is not there. It's really kind of an unprecedented time. Where, and you can't just use the old bromide that housing's gonna lead you into and out of recession because we've different circumstances with the, uh, with, with the, with the pandemic, obviously. So, uh, you know, when the Fed is going to actually become more dovish in reverse rates and the impact that will have on treasury spreads and the long bond and and how mortgage rates might react to that uh, obviously we, we'd like for the fed to take more certainty but lobbying them is very different than lobbying the congress often we're lobbying the congress to try to weigh in with the fed because of the influence that they might have so i think it's going to be a rocky ride for the next 13 months next 18 months um, you know I, as i said i'm an optimist and i think that our system is durable but, you know, uh, podcasts like this, the way that information flows instantaneously, it's, it's really changed our politics. And we're seeing that rapid change before our eyes. And it's, it's our job to work on the industry's behalf within all that change. Is lobbying the Federal Reserve, is, does that fall under your umbrella or is that more your colleague piece? That's a shared piece by really a, a, a full bunch of our, okay. our, our colleagues. Um, our, our chief economist, Mike Fred and Tony, uh, spends an awful lot of time exchanging data and opinion and forecast with, with the Federal Reserve because there are many economists that work there, but the Fed is also an important regulatory body, you know, and, and so we do have subject matter experts that interact with the Fed and on the occasion that their regulations, we mentioned Basel III, uh, they're, they're very much the lead agency in that regard on that rulemaking, you know, that, the, that their regulatory uh, uh, scope and agenda does impact mortgage, so it's 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 a different it's a different central bank kind of approach you have to take. It's not the same as lobbying your legislature and you know going up to Capitol Hill to meet in the office. All right, so I'm gonna do some rapid fire. I think we have like ten minutes left to go. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, is there a path to him to become speaker? I don't think there's a path to Hakeem Jeffries becoming speaker unless Democrats retake the majority in okay. 2024, and there's a slim margin. It's, it's four votes now that Republicans have as their majority with the vacancies right now. Um, things could change. And I think we're in, a, in an era here relatively the last several election cycles where you've seen that, the ping pong back and forth of neither party having a very large majority in either the House or the Senate. So it's possible. I'm not a believer that there's going to be a moderate 
uh, the Republican Democrat bipartisan coalition that might lead to yeah. a, a speaker. Yeah, Jeffrey, th that's a that's a total uprising yeah. of of the party in, uh, yeah. in power. Right. right. But right. isn't it only six? Right. Would you only need six current Republicans in the House to, to flip? Sure, it's a small number of people that would that would have to flip, but you you really wouldn't want to do that for the breadth of support you'd need for that dramatic a change. You'd really have to have a much larger number. Okay. So. Um, I would now I want to dig into because I we have time because um, you mentioned affordable housing and and, I, and this is a pure like I'm curious is affordable housing something that we look to the federal government for, uh, or can they not solve the real issue at hand? whether it's um, you know, the, the inability to, to find cheap land, the inability to develop land, to change uh, building code ordinances, or, yeah. you know, it, it, or is it, is it a, everything in concert? Like, how could the federal government make it easier for towns, municipalities, counties, et cetera, to, to make home ownership more affordable? Well, it's really kind of a carrot and stick approach that the feds can take. Um, you're right. The underlying premise of your question is that land use and building codes and all the other intersections that lead to how you construct housing, whether that's single or multifamily, is regulated and governed at the state and local level. Um, and there's not much that the federal government can do other than encourage uh, those jurisdictions to be more mindful of the need for affordable housing. So you see zoning questions being examined and you see sort of test case templates from around the country, you know, but something that worked in Minnesota is not necessarily going to be the right, you know, solution in Florida or even in one, you know, jurisdiction within Florida as versus Texas as versus California. I mean, it's $125,000 and probably even more than that before you ever put a stick in the ground. Yep. Once you get land entitled in, in most jurisdictions in California, just because of environmental impact and all the other, you know, uh, work that has to be done, uh, you know, prior to construction. So or the you know, land development process to begin. Um, so really encouraging HUD to perhaps condition some of its funding, CDBG funds for communities or, you know, the home program funds or things of that sort. Um, you know, as carrots, you know, rather than having sticks to say, you know, there's a mandate for this particular kind of approach to uh, affordability. And look, affordability and, and affordable housing is one of those terms that's kind of in the eye of the beholder. A lot of people hear that and they think just subsidized, you know, government mandated housing. And that's not really in, you know, market, there are market rate affordable housing solutions, and it really will take public-private partnerships to, to solve this approach. But there's a regionality to it as well, because some states and some jurisdictions have more available land and more available land that's, uh, you know, in a position to be built upon. So uh, creating more supply, you know, beyond the complexity of rehab and, and rehabilitation of existing housing stock, it's, it's a complex web. But the, the feds really can be an encourager more so than a mandator. On affordable housing. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, being a practitioner, being boots in the ground, in the trenches with the troops, so to speak. And I, I live in Central Florida. I honestly tell people that, based on my experiences, I don't see us not having an inventory issue for the next decade because I don't see a path to at least in that state. Maybe in Indiana it's different. Maybe in Nebraska it's different. But in in Central Florida, I don't see how we're going to be able to incentivize a home builder to go build more units at a price point that allows a first time home buyer to purchase it, afford it, and the builder to turn a profit because home builders are yeah. for-profit uh, entities. 
And when I start thinking about what, what could the federal government do? Okay, maybe if we got better immigration policies, maybe could we got find slightly cheaper labor? Maybe, maybe, but that still doesn't help us acquire well, the land. I'm, for yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's certainly an important part of the equation as well. But you know, you 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 mentioned the price point and being able to build, you know, at a level that truly is affordable for the consumer, absent some kind of government subsidy. And I had mentioned earlier in one of your questions the potential for housing tax credits that really could help because that will be the, you know, filling the gap so that you can incentivize a contractor to okay. potentially do single family. And there's been a very successful program since 1986 that some of these, uh, you know, newly proposed tax credits on the single family side are modeled after the low income housing tax credit, which is the single bigger biggest generator of new multifamily affordable housing in the current tax code. So there are examples of how you can, you know, uh, take public policy steps to, to make affordability more within the average citizen's reach. I will say one of the things that NBA has done, and they're almost like little laboratories in different cities, Memphis, yeah. Columbus, what, Philadelphia, Philadelphia is another, about, yeah, is another convergence, city yeah. where, where it's the convergence program, which is really an attempt to create um, you know, these laboratories to bring the nonprofit community, the government community at the state, local and federal levels in those various jurisdictions. And then importantly, you can't do this without private industry to try to show what works, because what works in Philadelphia is not the same, uh, you know, answer in, in, in Memphis and certainly not in a, in a, in a jurisdiction like Columbus. So it, uh, the whole part of that is to try to do the doable, win the winnable, but set a template out there so that other jurisdictions might follow those examples. So I appreciate your your carrot and stick analogy, right? Going to the home builders as the federal government saying, if you do X, I'll reward you with Y. If you build a home for 300,000 300, or below, right. then you will qualify for a $5,000 tax credit on that one unit. Well, Versus like the stick, which be, yeah. if you don't yeah. do this, then I'm right. gonna penalize you. No funds are available, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that is also the carrot and stick with the various local and state jurisdictions to build more readily towards transit or to build with, you know, affordable housing needs and, you know, an actual number of units that you want to try to produce within a given period of time as part of, you know, the way that they're regulating um, affordability, but also, you know, how, co how communities are developed within those various jurisdictions. I'm going to flip the script. We have like two or three minutes left. Bill's crystal ball. Does Biden earn the Democratic nomination, assuming, you know, no issues with health? Yeah, no issues with health. That was that was my trap door, you know, <laughs> to answer your question. I mean, is, is yes. there even is there even a, a, a case out there that he would step down and say, I'm not going to do this? Yeah. And look, this is kind of simple arithmetic. Those that ran against him when he won the nomination and, and you know, became the incumbent president in 2020 after that election have all declined to run again. Vice President Harris isn't going to run against him. You see Governor Newsom in California, you know, sort of putting feelers out mm -hmm. and others around the country, but they're really kind of stage setting for the post-Biden environment. So absent health, I think he's the Democratic nominee. And ex-President Trump? Yeah, I mean, look, the polling would indicate that he's well ahead in the Republican primaries. And you've had a, a good number of people that have been vying in the primary, spending a lot of time in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and they're not really making the considerable dent. So... I won't even go down the rabbit trail of, you know, a candidate for president or a former president who's been indicted and then potentially <laughs> convicted and might be running for office in jail. Those are all potentialities. And really, 
I think that's why we have an institutional risk that I mentioned earlier. I mean, you know, the rule of law really is an important factor here uh, in you know, abiding by whatever the various jurisdictions you know, might, might decide with respect to former President Trump and candidate Trump, if that's the reality. I, I, I think, think things are shaping up for Biden-Trump one more time. Liz Cheney as a uh, as a third uh, third yeah, party. I, I mean, somebody like that. I think there will be independents, and they could be a factor. I mean, Robert F. Kennedy is de declining now to run as a Democrat, and probably will have more of an impact in the election space um, as an independent. Ralph Nader always traditionally ran as the Green Party candidate. He said he's not going to do that, and uh, it's certainly his candidacy, just like the Perot candidacy, helped decide the Bush forty one Clinton election. Uh, because he you know, took votes from both, but really probably took more from H.W. Bush in that election cycle. You saw Nader make a difference in the Bush-Gore you know, election that was you know, hair-raiser close and the Supreme Court had to decide at the end, uh, but that really subtracted from some of the votes that Gore would have had. So independence can matter. I, yeah, I think we'll, we'll see an independent, whether it's Kennedy or someone else who may make a difference. If you're not willing to answer this, I totally get it, but if you were to pick a dark horse candidate that wasn't named Trump or Biden, um, who would you put your money on? Like you're making one of those crazy Look, the, prop bets. Republicans, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how much stock I'll put in the answer I give yeah. you. That'll be my qualifier. Republicans is wanting an alternative to Trump uh, are pointing a, a lot to Governor Yunkin of Virginia. And a lot of that is, yes, he found a way to thread a needle in, the, in a purple state to be elected as a Republican governor, but he also did that against, you know, anti-Trump headwinds, particularly in the northern Virginia suburbs. But he's also someone who's independently wealthy, who could self-fund a lot of his candidacy, but also could raise a good bit of money. But it is a long shot, in my view, yeah. to see him become a viable candidate or take a nomination away from Trump, particularly coming in at the last minute. And on the, on the other side of the aisle? I don't really see anybody emerging on the Democratic no side, but a bunch of people will jump in if, God forbid, something were to happen to the president and he had to decline yeah, to, when, to and run. Yeah, and one of those probably be Governor Newsom, right? I mean, that, that would be probably well, the— th that, that would certainly be a name to be out there. I think you should see some of the, the candidates who ran in the 2020 cycle probably reconsider as well. Awesome. So I'm going to wrap this up. Um, one of the underlying themes of the show is everything you should have learned in school but didn't because it wasn't taught. So what is one thing you're looking back of your 40 year career, um, the success you've had, what is something you wish you had learned or was taught to you earlier in life? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I kind of think back to my civics class in uh, our classes in middle school and high school, uh, which really was sort of the place where I became interested in public policy and the political process in our country. Um, you know, so I, I, maybe my answer, which is a bit of a twist, is I'm grateful for what I learned in, uh, in school. Uh, now, I will tell you the reality of having been in and around Washington since 1985 and having a series of uh, jobs with increasing levels of responsibility is, uh, you know, a growth of some cynicism in terms of how things actually are accomplished. Uh, not that I think it's a smoke-filled room and, and, you know, dirty actor kind of environment, uh, there's a, there are those elements to, you know, every aspect mm -hmm. of life, including, you know, folks in financial services, you know, or, or you know, pick, pick, pick an industry. Little League Baseball. Yeah, you can go down to Little League absolutely. Baseball. Yes. Ab ab absolutely. That's that's why I love politics, because politics essentially is 
how people get along and how they coalesce to pick those amongst themselves to lead them and make tough decisions for them. Uh, because, you know, we believe essentially in uh, a Republican form of government with a small R, you know, to govern ourselves uh, as a republic and delegate that authority to people, but we're, we're democratically electing them. And I see a lot of stresses in that system. And I wasn't taught that in school, but I don't, I don't see how anybody back when I was at Richfield High School in Waco, Texas, would have anticipated what we're kind of living through now in this information age. Awesome. Bill Kilmer, Chief Lobbyist, Mortgage Bankers Association. Thank you so much for your time today. You and I have a conference to get back to. I'm sure you have a couple more speaking engagements to get to. He's Bill Kilmer. I'm Dustin Owen. You've just tuned in to the Loan Officer Podcast. That's all the time we have for you today, but we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Thank you, Dustin.